So if you've got a Bible, if you can turn to Matthew chapter 8. Um, if you don't have one, you didn't bring one with you, you've not got one on your smartphone, because I know people do that. There are some Bibles over there for you to just uh, take one of them. I don't mind you walking down and grabbing one, that's fine. I'd rather you had the Word of God open in front of you than not at all. Um, so if you haven't got one, um, then go and grab one now. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. And um, we're going to look at 17 verses, but I'm not necessarily going to read every single one of them. Um, We'll kind of hone in on a, a couple of aspects uh, in particular. And uh, we're just going to get straight back into it. When we left last, we'd obviously got to Matthew chapter 7. That had taken the best part of a year. But the Sermon on the Mount is finished now. And we get a little introduction at the start of chapter 8 as to what's happening. He says, when he, Jesus, came down from the mountain. This is 8 verse 1. So when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So... The Sermon on the Mount has taken place, from what we know, is we've been reading it for a good while. A lot of content has been shared by Jesus. We have no idea how long that sermon was, whether what we have in Scripture is an abbreviated form, whether he said far more. I can imagine he did. Um, I can imagine he might have paused in places and said other bits that weren't recorded, but by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, these are the things that have been recorded down. But even so, that would be one heck of a sermon. We're not looking at like a five-minute rush job that he's spent on the mountainside with these crowds. They've been there for a while, and we know that Jesus gets in the habit of speaking for a long time. If you remember when he's speaking to the crowds, and that he's been speaking for so long, they're hungry. And, you know, you get the feeding of the 5,000, you get the feeding of the 4,000, because the disciples wanted to send them away for their lunch or their dinner. But Jesus has been speaking for a good long time. He's taught about so many things. If you think about the different things he's taught and expanded upon, he's been there a while. Through the Sermon on the Mount, he's taught the Beatitudes, what it looks to live a blessed life, to walk in mercy, to, to be humble, to be a blessing to people, to love your enemies. How we should be different when it comes to our anger, when it comes to lust, when it comes to divorce, when it comes to making promises. How we to, again, he says, love your enemies, the recurring theme, to be loving, to give, to not just take. He talks about giving, whether that's giving of our time, whether that's giving financially to the kingdom of God. He talks about prayer. He talks about fasting. He talks about having your treasure in heaven, not being ruled by fear, not being ruled by anxiety. How we should make judgments, how, should we, how we should make judgment calls of people that are in the faith and then those that are out of it. How we bear fruit, how we build solid foundations. Now even me just kind of summarizing, that took a bit, that took a couple of minutes. Jesus will have taken a while going through all this stuff. He'll be tired. He might even be a little bit, well I don't know, well, he's probably not cranky because he's the son of God, but he, he's tired. <laughs> he's given out, he's given out, he's given out and he comes down off the mountain we're told and the great crowds, the same crowds that have listened to him on the mountainside follow him down and straight away if you read chapter 8 if you've got your bible open he meets this leper he's not even had a break he's not had his kit kat he's not put his feet up and he's straight in will jesus live out the very things he's been talking about for three chapters well two chapters all these things about loving your enemies all these things about being a blessing to people what will he do and straight away he meets this leper. And there's a challenge in this. When you're tired, how do you respond? Because Jesus would have been tired. Yes, he was the son of God, but he was also human. 
He would have been tired. If you've ever done any form of public speaking, even if it's for one or two minutes, those that did it last week at the baptisms, even sharing your testimony out the front for a couple of minutes, it can be exhausting. It can be quite tired, the emotion that you put into it and the energy that you put into it and the thought that you put into it and the prayer that you've put into it. Well, Jesus has been teaching for a long time. And the challenge is when we're, when we're uh, tired, when we've had a long day, how do we respond? Do we respond in faith? Do we live out what we say we will, what we've been talking about? When we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're cranky, when we're afflicted, does our character line up with what we profess? That's a really good question to ask ourselves, isn't it? We talk about all these things, blessing the Lord, the things that we've sung. There is no other name but Jesus. But on a Monday morning, is that the case? After you're stuck in traffic on your commute, is that the case? Have we still got faith? Are we still putting our trust in Jesus? When your kids are driving you balmy, which of course mine never do, do you still have faith? Do you still put your trust in Jesus? This is what it says. Behold, a leper came to Jesus and he knelt before him and he said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You know, as I've already said, it's one thing to teach things, isn't it? It's one thing to profess things to one another and say things it's another entirely to live that out that's the challenge isn't it will you walk the walk you can talk the talk but will you walk it you say you're a believer in Jesus you say you want to live a holy life well will you put that into practice and the same crowds that have been listening to him are now with him heading towards Capernaum and Jesus has been teaching 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 and this leper comes up and leprosy was the disease that you just I mean you never really want any disease do you let's be honest but it was the disease you wouldn't want. You know, if we think of, you know, common equivalents today or ones that have been in the past, you know, in, in modern history, you think of things like malaria or you think of HIV AIDS or, you know, you think of cancer today. They are diseases that you just, you know, they might give you a bit of the chills, to be honest with you, when you kind of dwell upon it. Well, in Jesus' day, that was leprosy. That was the thing that nobody wanted. If you were a leper, it wasn't just that you were unwell, you were socially outcast. Nobody wanted to hang out with you. You, you know, you say, oh, well, your friends and family would support you. They wouldn't because you'd be a leper. So your friends and family would be like, well, I'm not hanging out with Steve anymore. Look what's happened to Steve. And he'd just be left by himself. The doctors couldn't do anything to help you. And this leprosy would just decay and decay your body. In fact, people actually didn't just ignore you. People hated you. They thought it was the judgment of God upon that person. It was like, well, you must have done something. This is just God's judgment upon your life for reckless living or whatever. That's what the Pharisees would think and the Pharisees would say. People would hate you. People would avoid you, you know, if you, were, if you were going into a queue, they'd be like the parting of the Red Sea, so the leper could... In fact, people wouldn't even do that. They'd have to be really brave to go out in public because of what would be said, the way people would look. And yet here you have, this is the guy, the first guy that Jesus meets. In fact, the only hope they had was, was faith in God, which is why Jesus trots out. If you read the passage, he talks about, well, now make sure you go and do what's appropriate before the priests and according to the law of Moses. Because actually for a leper, that was the only hope you had that you'd be made clean was through faith in God. That's verse four. And Jesus in his first encounter, post-lengthy sermon is with this guy. 
You know, if you or me had met a leper and shook his hand, we'd be infected, if you like. A little bit like these horrible zombie movies that everybody seems to like, but I just, they really give me the creeps. All those kind of like, the, you know, The Walking Dead, have you heard of that? Like some of the youth go on about this like program. Me and Grace watched the first like 10 seconds and there was this girl who was like a zombie and it just freaked me out. So I've not watched it. Not for me. But when they like do that, they get infected. And that's kind of what would happen with leprosy. When you, when you would touch this person, you'd be infected, which is why everybody just kind of avoided them. And yet here is Jesus, reaches out to him, stretches out to him, and the reverse happens. Instead of Jesus being infected, almost like Jesus' grace and his righteousness and his, his healing, his, his, his restoration, his redemption, all those things reverse the leprosy. You see the compassion, the kindness, all the things Jesus has been talking about, straight away he demonstrates it in the most amazing way. With what everyone else would be thinking, here's the worst of the worst. Jesus is straight in there lays hands on him, he's miraculously healed. And you've got to ask the question, how long it had been for this chap? How long had this leper kind of suffered with nobody, you know, human contact, friendships, families, everybody, even the, the religious, the holy, those that profess to walk well with God would have just ignored him. And yet Jesus is different. He doesn't see him as a nuisance. He doesn't see him as a blot on society. He doesn't see him as someone to avoid and walk and cross the road. He sees him as someone, well, this is my way of actually loving. And I've talked about loving people. I've talked about blessing people. I've talked about what it means to live a godly life. This is what it looks like. Stretching my hand out and restoring the broken. Restoring the hurting. Bringing healing to the sick. And that's how he starts. He heals the guy. And straight away, Matthew doesn't hang around. It's really interesting. He moves the story on. And I want to read this for you. So there's a point there in, in the way that we approach, you know, the way that we talk about our faith. Do we live that out? That's what I'm trying to draw out there. Do we, when we see maybe the last, the least, and the lost, avoid them? Or are we actually, we talk about being a blessing to the poor. We talk about loving our enemies. We talk about... All these things we've looked at in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've said, yes, I want to do that. But do we? Because Jesus does. That's the challenge. It's hard, but Jesus does. And that's the challenge for us there, I think, from that, those first few verses. And then Matthew moves it on. This is what it says if you've got your Bible open. And this is the heart of the passage, really. This is the bit I want to focus on a bit more. Famous story. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion, so he would be a non-Jew, that's important, he's not one of the Jewish people, he'd be a Roman, came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. He's suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and I will heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in all of Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, and they'll recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's a way of saying that from the corners of the earth, people will come. And they will find faith and they will be saved. Not just the people of Israel, but from all corners of the earth. That's what he's saying there. 
And then he says, while the sons of the kingdom, talking about Israel, talking about the godly people that have had this revelation of the Messiah for so long, some of them will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, anyone who rejects Jesus, that will be their destiny. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus doesn't actually end up going to this guy's house. He just speaks a word. And instantaneously, this servant of the centurion is healed. So in a nutshell, um, there's a slightly different account in Luke. Not to get upset about that, but Luke's a doctor. And so you know what it's like with doctors. You won't be able to read his handwriting. But second to that, it would be incredibly detailed. And uh, Luke always tends to have a little more detail, whereas Matthew kind of abbreviates. And in Luke's one, um, it's not the centurion that comes, but it's kind of the centurion's posse or some people that he sends on his behalf. But actually in that day, it didn't really matter because they would be speaking on his, his behalf. So it's as if the centurion was there. So the centurion or his people, whatever, it doesn't really matter, come and speak to Jesus. And his servant is done in, lying paralyzed, unable to work, unable to operate, unable to do what he's supposed to do. And so he asks Jesus, heal my servant, demonstrates great faith in Jesus, and the servant is healed at the words of Jesus. And you kind of go, well, what's the point in that story? I can kind of get the leper one because it's demonstrating straight away. But what's going on here? Yes, there's some theological things going on there where Jesus is saying, I've come for all people. Here, I'm demonstrating it. I'm coming for the last. I'm coming for the least. I'm coming for the lost. I'm not just coming for you, Israel, but I'm coming for the Gentiles too. I'm coming for the people of Chesterfield. I'm coming for the people of Sheffield. From the east and the west, they will be gathered is what he says. So that's going on. But also some other things are going on that I think are important. This centurion, a Roman man in charge of 100 men, you would want to be mates with him. Now, in Matthew, we don't get a great lot of detail, but from Luke's account, we get a little bit more of what this guy's like. He sounds brilliant. Honestly. First, he's come to plead with Jesus, who's pretty busy, come to plead with Jesus for his servant. For his servant. Now, a servant back then would be like property. They'd have no voting rights. They'd have no legal rights. They were disposable. As, as horrible as that is for me to say, that's, that's the culture and that's what was going on. This, this centurion servant would have been disposable. So if he's paralyzed and he's lying ill in bed, he's no use. Just get rid of him. Get the next one in. But this centurion's a bit different. This centurion seems like a nice bloke. He's gone out of his way to say, Jesus, will you... Will you break in here? Will you change my servant? Will you heal my servant? In Luke, we get told some other really interesting stuff. We're told that he loved the Jewish nation, this centurion. This, this, you might not think that's impressive, but let me put it like this. This centurion loved religious people. You don't seem particularly surprised by that. I think that's amazing. <laughs> you know how hard that is to do? You know, we can all probably think of really religious people. Well, this centurion loved them, even though he was from a different place and didn't necessarily share the same faith at this point. He loved them. He even gave generously to the building of their synagogue. That's amazing. That's like an atheist saying, oh, here's a million quid, Redeemer King. We'll build your building. Wouldn't that be amazing? Just pray that now. That'd be great. But like, he's helping build the synagogue. 
He seems like a thoroughly nice bloke. He's a class act. He's generous. He's humble. He approaches Jesus or his people approach Jesus and says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. What an amazing statement that is. I'm not worthy. Yes, I'm in charge of 100 men and I feel really important. He doesn't do any of that. He's not trying to take a selfie with Jesus. He's not saying, here I was 2,000 years ago. It was great. It's all about me. No, it was, Lord, I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. He's humble. He's generous. He's kind. He's loving. Hence Jesus' comments, the amazing comments he makes in verse 10. When he says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. I haven't seen this in, in anyone else yet today. But despite all that, this centurion needs Jesus just as much as the servant does. Do you get that? That yes, the servant needs Jesus because he's lying paralyzed. But so does this good man. And sometimes I think we can wash over that. You know, um, I've had a few conversations with some quite strong atheists over the years. And one of the things that they always say is, oh, the church is just for those that have a crisis. And they come to faith and then the church exploits them, blah, 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 blah. I think, okay, well, yes, the church is there actually for the needy and the poor. So I'm not, that's not a bad thing. But actually, here's a good guy. Here's a guy who seems to have his life completely together. He's got a great reputation. People love him. He loves his dying servant. But actually, even though he's not got an emergency in his own life, his servant does, that's not enough. He's in need of Jesus just as much as the paralyzed man. And I've said this before, but when we start to compare ourselves to Jesus in terms of our holiness or, you know, in terms of our how good we are as people, that's when we realize well, it's never going to be good enough. It's when we compare ourselves to our mates, we feel brilliant or wretched, depending on your perspective. <laughs> but when we start going, oh, what was Jesus like? How can I be like Jesus? Jesus is the standard. Jesus is what I'm supposed to be attaining in terms of how I'm supposed to walk and what I'm supposed to give to people. We say like the centurion, Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not worthy. You see, when you spend time with Jesus, when you start seeing what he's like, when you draw into his presence, I think there's a real sense of how amazing how awesome, how great he is. And in that, how much our need of God is. Lest we never forget our need of God, that the centurion had the same need as his servant. A couple of other things I want to pick up is that we can have a faith that makes Jesus marvel, which I think is amazing. Let me just read this to you. This is verse 10. I don't want you to miss this. When Jesus heard this, so he heard the centurion's kind of, you know, conversation. He marveled and he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. You might think, well, okay, he's amazed. That's, that's pretty cool. But Jesus is blown away here. Okay, And I want you to understand that the word marvel that we hear there, whereas Jesus says he marvels at something, only appears twice in the whole of his ministry. It's not something where he's saying it all the time, so it devalues it. He's not saying, oh, and he marveled at this, and he marveled at that. 
Well, he's not marveling at anything, if that's the case. But only two times in the whole, across the four Gospels, in the life of Jesus, do we hear that he marvels at anything. And one of them is the centurion's faith. He comes from a different background, but he sees something in Jesus and says, I know you can heal my servant. I know you can save his life. I've got a faith that says you can. You say it and it happens. Just as I say, go and they go and come and they come. You speak the word and it's done. Oh, to have a faith like that, right? Don't you want a faith like that? I do. I want to get excited about faith like that. Faith that says to this mountain, oh, be gone and into the sea. This centurion had great faith. Interestingly, the only other place where Jesus marvels is not quite the same. It's not the same story in a different gospel, but it's an account from Mark 6. And in Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And uh, that's where he's grown up. That's where he's been a teenager. That's where everyone's seen him. He goes back and he starts preaching, starts teaching in the synagogue, telling the people, you know, come to faith. I'm here. I'm the promised Messiah, etc., etc. The marks that the kingdom of God is at hand. And people start saying, isn't that the carpenter's son? When did he go to Bible college? When did he get his theology? He can't be saying these things. And they start to moan. And they start to have a whinge. Even though they're astonished at the level of his teaching, they're like, this is the carpenter's son. And this is what it says as they take offense at Jesus and his ministry. This is what... Mark records down that Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Well, that's pretty mighty, but maybe Mark's got a sense of humor. And he marveled. That's the word, that's the word that's used there. That Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. That's a scary verse. Jesus marvels at great faith from the centurion, but he also marvels at their unbelief. They're the only two places in all of Scripture that you will find Jesus marveling at anything. And one is amazing faith, and one is unbelief. You see, when you actually read into Mark 6, it's not just what's accompanying unbelief there is hostility towards Jesus, is skepticism, is cynicism towards him. But also, I believe, there'd be a cynicism towards not just the things that he's saying, but the things that he's doing. The healing of the sick. The setting free of people from the demonic. That the poor would be loved. You know, these religious types maybe wouldn't have been too happy that the leper was the one who was getting healed. That Jesus was spending time not just with the Pharisees, but with the prostitute and the tax collector, with slimy sinners. They don't say slimy, but that's the impression you get. They wouldn't have been very happy, and here they are having a moan again. And Jesus says he marveled because of their unbelief. And amazing, it says he could do no mighty work there. That's scary. I mean, apart from heal a few people, that's pretty good going. But I think the point Mark's trying to draw out there is actually God is not a forceful God who forces things upon us. But also, there's got to be faith. There's a faith element. Here is a hostile, cynical, skeptical crowd. Skeptical about 
the miraculous. Skeptical about his ability to perform the supernatural. So what happens as a result? He marvels at their unbelief. He marvels that they don't believe. I just think when we're like that, and we drift into that really easily, when we start to be skeptical, when we start to be hostile, when we start to kind of be cynical about the miraculous, and we drift, because I think we drift into that, I think it displeases the Lord. That's what I read when I read that in Mark 6, then I read, the, I read about the century. I think it displeases the Lord. Because I think he wants people that marvel, that, he, that we have a faith that Jesus marvels at and goes, wow, these people really believe in me. These people really believe I can take death and bring life. These people really believe that 2,000 years ago I died upon a cross for them, that they can have a new life now and they can have it abundantly. John 10.10 says, that's the kind of faith he wants. And yet so often, are we just a bit cynical and a bit hostile? And instead, I can just get this sense of it grieving God the Holy Spirit. That we don't have faith to say, no, God, you can do. You can and you do do amazing things. You do perform signs and wonders in this day and age. You do transform lives. You know, every time somebody comes to faith, it's a miracle. So how these people don't believe in miracles today, I have no idea. Because they're a walking, talking one if they put their faith in Christ. God has always been in the business of transforming lives. Until that day Jesus comes back, he is going to continue to do that. I see no other explanation in Scripture other than that he will continue to pour out his grace upon us and continue to move amongst his people. We don't disengage our brain, though, which, I'll be honest, the charismatic movement does have a, a reputation for. Switching off your brain, letting anything go, it's not what I'm talking about here. God's word is the primary way of revelation to us. But how good that Dorothy had a dream, right? How good, and how good that is for her. But I think when we're skeptical, we're hostile towards the things of God and the things that he does, it displeases him. And where there's no life, it's not because people aren't nice. We can be a really great bunch and, you know, be really nice people. But I think because of unbelief, and cynicism, it just doesn't please the Lord. And I think that's what we see in Mark 6. Jesus could have done as many, I believe he could have done as many miracles as he wanted to. But he didn't want to force the issue upon people that wouldn't believe. Who were hostile towards him. Instead, he would move on and say, well, I'll carry on teaching. I'll carry on shining my light in the darkness. And I'll give the opportunity for other people to hear. So that's what he did. What pleases the Lord is faith. Even faith as small as a mustard seed. That's what pleases the Lord. You might feel like, oh, I, I, that faith you're talking about, Dan, the faith of the centurion, I don't have faith like that. Well, maybe even if you've got faith as small as a mustard seed, Jesus says, that pleases him. That we would put our trust in him. And the Lord would marvel. I would love for the Lord to marvel at the faith of this church. For all the right reasons. Wouldn't you? 
to marvel. Wow, what great faith the people of Chesterfield have. What a dream and a vision they have that I can transform their town and their communities one life at a time. What great faith. Because I think our other option versus faith and why we have maybe hostility, perhaps why there's skepticism, perhaps why there's unbelief, is fear. And in each of our walks with God, I'm not going to pretend that we're exclusively always in that position of faith because we're not. I think we're floating, aren't we, between fear and faith. With circumstance that hit us, with what life brings, with... Uh, where we are in our own walk with Jesus, we float between the two, but we need to be ruled by faith. We need to see things as God sees them, to say to the things that seem impossible that actually with God they're possible. That's why we pray for the sick, because I can't physically heal Dorothy, but I know someone who can. I know someone who does. And that's impossible, seemingly, isn't it? Apart from Christ. And then all things are possible. Sickness, poverty, addiction, we can be the people that speak life and bring hope. Because faith brings hope, whereas I believe fear just brings despair. Having faith will bring hope to your life. And I'll tell you why. Because having a faith like the centurions takes you into the realm of anything is possible with God. That God is greater than any circumstance, anything that I face, he's able to overcome. And that brings joy and peace and hope. That's why I opened up at the start talking about faith when you're hungry or when you're moody or when you've had a bad day. Because that's when the rubber hits the road, isn't it? It could be easier to have faith on a Sunday where you feel energized and upbuilt, but crumbs, you know, Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon, I've had a rough day at work. What we need to remember is this, that God has it. There's time and again, I love that, you know, Revelation, you know, sum up the book of Revelation. God's got it all under control. Don't understand everything, but God's got it all under control. It ends well. Jesus has the victory. What does Jesus cry from the cross? He doesn't say, it's temporary. I've almost done it. He says, it's finished. I've done it. It's complete. I've trampled sin, death, and hell for you. And that means that if God's got it, we can look to our present, we can look to our future, and we can say, Jesus has the victory. And in that, it should define how we view the present and how we view the future. That should be our lens. Jesus has got it. Jesus has won. Start doing that. It starts to change how you view life. It starts to change how you view people. It starts to change how you view that horrible Monday morning. Because Jesus has won. And Jesus goes with me. We then read that Jesus goes to Peter's house and uh, casually heals his mother-in-law. For some reason, I'd completely like, oh, Peter must have been married. (laughs) That was a new thing for me. He's got a mother-in-law. Anyway, and uh, we have these three miracles recorded down from 1 through to 17. You know, the the mother-in-law there at the end, she's got a fever. She can't work. So Jesus goes in, heals her. She's not serving straight away. They have some food and and some rest. And in verse 17, there's this uh, great verse from Isaiah 53, uh, which I just want to read a couple of verses to you, because I think they're significant in what is being said. There's no accident that these verses are here from Isaiah 53, 53, 4, at the end of this passage where three people's lives are transformed. 
And the, uh, the quote from Matthew is taken from Isaiah 53, 4, which says, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah carries on. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, upon, uh, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we've been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's this summary statement, that's what Matthew's trying to get the readers to refer back to. Isaiah 53, well what's Isaiah 53? It's the great promise of the coming saviour. It's the great promise of the one who's going to come and restore. The great promise of the one who's going to come and redeem. The great one who's going to come and heal your sickness. Whether in this life, but guaranteed for the next. I saw this beautiful thing. I've said this before, I think, a month ago. And uh, I don't know if it was on a headstone or it was on a, you know, in the newspaper they do the little things. And it said something like, so-and-so is now completely well, completely healed, restored and no longer in any pain and I thought oh fantastic praise the Lord and then it said underneath it has gone to be with the Lord so and so so and so this day at this time and I thought ah it's right though whether in this life or in the next Jesus is still in the business of redemption restoring taking things that are broken and mending them putting them back together and these are a few of the applications I just want to bring there really quick the first is that God heals I hope we believe that. Because as a church, that's, that's our standpoint, that God heals. And that God will continue to bring healing until ultimately we're completely healed and we're with him in glory. God heals. Yesterday, today, going forward, he does it. He's interested in us as whole people. Not just our physical healing. When I'm talking about healing, I'm talking about physical, yes. Emotional. Spiritual mental, basically our whole person. God cares for us as whole people. And why believe God heals today? Maybe you sat on the fence about it. Let me put this to you. It's in his DNA. It's in his very character. It's all he's ever done. Read the life of Jesus. What does he spend his ministry doing? Healing the sick. Restoring broken lives. Why would he stop? There's no compelling answer to that at all. It's in his DNA. He's in the business of restoration, redemption, and drawing beauty from the depths. That's just what God does. That's the God we believe in, don't we? That there's hope for the hopeless. Secondly, I want you to see that we have to draw into the presence of Jesus. You can kind of look at this passage and see three people that are healed. What's, what's the similarity? Now, this might seem really Sunday school, but the similarity is Jesus. The situations are very different. You've got a Roman centurion pleading on behalf of his servant. You've got a leper, the outcast in society. And you've got a mother-in-law. You've got everybody. What's the similarity, Jesus? Everything else seems to change. He doesn't. And each of these people are somehow in the presence of Jesus. The leper, he throws himself at the mercy of Jesus and says, If you will it, please heal me. The centurion comes and pleads on behalf of his servant. Why? Because his servant's lying paralyzed in bed. Intercedes on behalf of him. 
And I think all of us here this morning will fit into one of those two categories. I'm not saying we've all got leprosy. What I'm saying is there will be people here that are sick for whatever reason. I've got really dodgy knees. I think that counts as sickness because I know one day I'm going to have awesome knees, right? Anything that's broken with me that won't be when I get to heaven is wrong with me now. Do you understand that? Therefore, it can be made right if God so wills it. Secondly, if you're not, you're feeling beautifully well, not even man flu gets you, you'll know people that aren't well. Much like this centurion. He was fine. He was good. But his servant was unwell. And what happens? Well, they all draw into the presence of Jesus. We have a responsibility to position ourselves in that relationship with him. That's what we can do. We can't physically heal people. It's Jesus that does that. But we can position ourselves in such a way, can't we? That we'd be in his presence. That we'd be praying for one another. That we'd be actively seeking him out. That as an individual, we have responsibility to place ourselves in the presence of Jesus. I can't walk your walk of God for you. You can't walk my walk of God for me. We each have our own walk before the Lord. And for those that simply can't do that, we do it on their behalf. Right? That's why we pray for the sick. That's why maybe we pray for people that we don't know. Or if the prayer email comes out and there's someone we've never heard on, we still pray. We do what the centurion does. Because when we draw close to Jesus, that's when life changes. It's not apart from him. Lives are only going to be transformed in and through him. It's not a show. It's not a performance when our our names are going to be up in lights. It's for the glory of God. And um, this is one of the things that really bothers me, not just about Christian TV, but, you know, for for whatever reason this week, um, it wasn't particularly late at night. It must have been like 9 o'clock or something. We put on... I'm not going to name and shame which channels they were, but, you know, you just flick through them, don't you? And you go, okay, okay, okay. I'll go back to watching Coronation Street or whatever because it's often better for you. And, like, it takes them about 30 seconds to ask for money. You notice that? We watched one and it was like, it was going on. It's quite a really good communicator. I was like, oh, it's good communication. This is good. Just send in your $273 pledge. It's like, oh, that's a huge amount of money. And it was all so you can be made right with God. It was all so you can be healed. It was all so you'd have a greater faith. Well, that's not the pathway to greater faith. It's putting yourself in the presence of Jesus. Forget that nonsense. I'm not saying don't give. I mean, don't give to them, obviously. That would be silly. But, (laughs) you know, part of our Christian walk and our worship of God is that we do give. But um, that's different. We're giving to something with vision to see lives transformed. The way that we are going to see lives transformed is to put ourselves in the presence of Jesus. You know, to our own shame, do we have a faith like the centurions? Are we desperate enough? You know, when we say, oh, we pray for that, did we just pray once? Or did we just keep praying? Were we relentless? Did we fast over it? Did we seek God on it? I think there's a challenge in there for us, isn't there? You know, are we serious about putting ourselves in the presence of God? What's our prayer life like? When was the last time we picked up the word? When we asked God to speak through it to us. I mean, the other option is that we do nothing. Do we expect, you know, is that what 
Is that a better option to do nothing? To not pray, to not put ourselves in the presence of Jesus? I don't think so. And the third thing, well, I've got two more things, but this is the third of the four, is that I believe that believing God heals today will shape your faith. So believing God can do something today will shape your faith, will shape how you look at the world, will shape how you interact with people. Let me put it like this. You know when you start saying something about yourself? Oh, I'm really stupid. And you just, you know, you might say, oh, I'm so thick. And you start saying that and you carry on saying that. After a while, actually, you kind of start to embody that, don't you? Right? Maybe it's just me. <laughs> so, well, and after a while, you're like, well, oh, no, I am thick, you know, oh. Tell yourself you're stupid enough, you're stupid enough times, you start to kind of believe the lie, right? You start saying, I've got no worth. Well, you know, I, I'm limited in that department, so I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to bring to the table. And so you start doing stupid things. Maybe you start living recklessly because you've convinced yourself that that's you. Well, that's completely wrong, isn't it? But can you see how the things that we think, the things that we do, shape the way we view ourselves, shape the way we view the world? If we believe in a God that can't heal today, in a God that can't redeem today, it shapes our faith, doesn't it? It shapes how we pray. It shapes whether we're going to pray for the sick, whether we're going to lay hands on people, whether we're going to ask God to move. And that informs our faith rather than what I want to inform our faith is what happened 2,000 years ago. And we have those beautiful verses from Isaiah 53 that he takes our place, that we get made right with God. <laughs> I know that sometimes we maybe struggle with that because we worry, uh, we fear of well, what happens if God doesn't heal that person? What happens if we pray and pray and nothing changes? And that happens. I, I don't believe in Scripture God gives a kind of blanket guarantee that this side of heaven, he's going to do that. But he encourages us to pray. You read James and he says, do this. Lay hands on the sick. Anoint them with oil. Get the elders around. Pray for them. Because, oh well, Surely he's written that because there's a purpose to it. Sometimes we don't maybe pray because we don't always get the answer that we're looking for. But my question is, is that a good enough reason not to? When God could answer that prayer if he wills it. If we have the faith that God marvels at, perhaps he would. I think it's better to pray, better to seek Better to ask God that he would heal someone than to just do nothing. Isn't it? Even if sometimes it's hard and sometimes we carry things, we still got to keep asking. We should never give up asking for the Lord to move amongst us. Because I think believing that God does amazing things today shapes our faith. You know, what does a faith do? It keeps risking. It keeps taking a chance. It keeps advancing. It keeps asking God to break through. It doesn't settle. It doesn't get scared to pray. You know, there's been moments where um, 
with my knees, you know, and there's been prayer and prayer and prayer for like 11 years now I've been praying for my knees and various people have gone through it, Soul Survivor and youth and stuff will have spent various time praying for them over the years and seemingly nothing's happened. But should that stop me from praying? No. I've got to keep praying. And there's some of you here this morning that have just settled. You've gone, well, I've had this for so long now, I give up. We've got to have faith that God can still break in. No matter how long we have been ill or we're carrying things, that we can have faith to believe that God can overcome. Just as he does here in Matthew chapter 8, he overcomes in three ways. Well, actually, as I'm going to say, it's four ways. It wasn't just three lives transformed in this passage, was it? There's the leper, he's made well. The centurion's servant, he's made well. There's Peter's mother-in-law, she's made well. And there's the centurion, who goes from not knowing Christ to putting his trust in Jesus. His life transformed. And he changes from just being, oops, changes from just being a good man to still a good man, but knows Jesus, which is the best man any of us can ever be, or the best woman any of us can ever be, is that we're, we're you know, we are good people, that's good to keep doing those things, but we know Christ and that's more important. And it's a decision that all of us face. Some of us might be sat on the fence still, maybe the baptisms last week just made, you know, made you a bit itchy and you're thinking, oh, maybe I really need to make a decision here to put my trust in Jesus or not. But he's come to rescue us. And uh, there's this great quote that I found from Lecrae, who's... Um, He's, he's brilliant, like, he's, he's brilliant lyrically, he's, uh, oh, these guys are laughing. Uh, if you're not into rap music, you might not like him. But <laughs> um, he's an American rapper and he, he consistently gets into the normal charts, but he's not just doing like, you know, watered down stuff, he's it's unapologetically full of faith. And he's written a book called Unashamed. And this is a quote from it, he says, Jesus doesn't just save us from a less fulfilling life or from eternal separation from God. He does those things, but he doesn't just save us from those things. He saves us to a life that can radically transform the world around us through the power of God. You see, the centurion is transformed, and that transformation will lead to further transformation. If you are here this morning as a Christian, we need to be people of transformation in our own lives, but also we're seeing it in the lives of others through the power of God. All of us can be used by God. All of us, if we just have a faith, even as small as a mustard seed. All of us can pray for the sick. All of us can care for the needy. All of us can be people full of faith.